there's some new opiates that have been developed, fentanyl, which is uh, so powerful and so lipophilic that you can actually spread it on your skin and get a high. So it's absorbed in the skin. So, you know, th there's some new synthetic drugs that are just spectacular. Welcome to Let's Talk Science Out Loud, the podcast that brings science to you and you to science. I'm Ilya Arbachsyogas, and thank you for joining us for our second episode. We'll resume our conversation between Professor Derek Vanderkoy and Claire Moffat, recorded at Stem Cell Talks this past May at the University of Toronto. Before we resume the interview, though, let me remind you that it could be your voice on this podcast. If you have a science question, let us know. Go online and visit us at explorecuriosity.org slash ltsoutloud on our Facebook page or tweet us at ltsoutloud. Tell us your question and who you'd like to ask it. Not only what might we find you an answer, but you could be the one doing the asking right here on this podcast. We'll continue the interview now, but be sure to stay tuned as Professor Ian Rogers will join us to answer your questions from Stem Cell Talks. You're also doing research into stem cell biology as well. Mm -hmm. So what kind of research are you focusing on there? Yeah, so uh, we started uh, in, um, in stem cell biology because we're interested in the nervous system. And uh, uh, we started looking at uh, cells that were continuing to divide in the adult brain. There's very few of them. Um, in systems like the blood, it's turning over constantly. So there's constant proliferation and productions of millions of new blood cells every day in our body. Mm -hmm. But in the brain, it's mostly quiescent. The cells aren't dividing. But there's a small region uh, in one area of the brain where cells continue to divide. And we started studying these about 20 years ago and, uh, and just trying to figure out what, what are those cells that are dividing in the adult brain doing. And uh, in a bar one time at a meeting, I met another uh, collaborator and uh, a friend introduced us and said, uh, this guy's just got a neat new study where he's trying to study uh, brain stem cells in a dish. And we were studying this population of cells in the adult brain that proliferate, and we wondered, are we studying the same cell? He's studying a cell in a dish, we're studying proliferating cells in the, in the adult brain, and it turns out we were studying very similar types of cells. So we started to collaborate, and that's how I actually got into brain stem cells, because yeah. we were just studying how the adult, who are those cells that are normally dividing in the adult brain? There's only a very small number of them. Right. And it turns out, those are not the stem cells. The stem cells in the brain are relative quiescent cells. They divide about once every, in, in a mouse brain, they divide about once every two weeks. They produce uh, a proliferating progenitor uh, that then proliferates every 12 hours for about seven or eight days and then it dies out or produces a new neuron. Right, so what exactly is a progenitor? So a stem cell is a cell with long-term self renewal ability so it can continue to survive and make copies of itself throughout its life. A progenitor cell is the descendant or the progeny of a stem cell, and it usually proliferates five or ten times before it differentiates into a neuron or a glial cell in the brain. And then it doesn't have the ability to proliferate anymore. It's only the stem cells that have the long-term proliferative and self-renewal ability, because they, that's how we really define stem cells, is that they're cells that can last the lifetime of an organism. Right. So why in the brain are there cells that don't differentiate or Still stem cells, yeah. As much. Yeah. So, so I guess th th it, it's, a, it's an interesting argument. So you could argue that the brain is so complicated because it's wired up. You know, it makes these the, this complicated connections between cells. And adding a lot of new cells in the adult brain may actually be a bad thing. 
because once you've got it wired up correctly, you might not want to add a lot of new cells. So the proliferation of new cells is restricted to two areas in a, in a, in a rodent brain, a mouse or rat brain. Uh, it's one area where the stem cells proliferate to produce new neurons that are going to be part of the olfactory system, the smell system of the rat. Uh, rats, rats and mice really get around by smell. They can see a little bit and stuff, but they really get around by smell. That's how they get around. And so in order to learn about new smells, one of the ways they do that is by making new neurons in the adult that can store new smell memories. Right. The other place that you make new neurons in the adult uh, brain is in the hippocampus, which is an area that's important for general memory formation. And the same argument holds there, is that you know if you want to store new memories, maybe one interesting way to do it is to make some fresh neurons that don't have old memories and are useful for storing new memories. And yeah. so the argument has been that you may not want to add new neurons throughout the entire brain because it's already wired up correctly and you don't want to mess things up. So if you thinking about neuron storing memory, do you think you could use these to cure, for example, degenerative disorders in the brain such as Parkinson's or Alzheimer's? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, uh, Alzheimer's is going to be one of the last ones because it's so complicated. Uh, there's there's al um, plaques uh, and tangles that are characteristics of the Alzheimer's brain that are present throughout the entire brain and so it's going to be, a, you know, you're going to have to fix a lot of things to replace a lot of bad neurons or dead neurons with the stem cells. Parkinson's is, is going to be the first thing that's solved because Parkinson's disease is due to the degeneration of one single population of neurons, the dopamine neurons, in one very small area of the brain. Okay. And there are a lot of labs right now using um, either adult brain stem cells or embryonic stem cells, the cells that uh, come from the very early embryo that can make any cell in the body, and trying to convince either the adult brain stem cells or the embryonic stem cells in a dish to make lots of dopamine neurons. Yeah. And they know if they do that, at least in animal models, they can take those dopamine neurons that are made from stem cells, put them back in, and actually uh, improve the symptoms of, of at least animals that have Parkinson's disease. There's even been some transplants in humans, not of stem cell-derived cells, but of um, uh, dopamine neurons that were isolated from aborted fetuses and they transplanted those into the brains of Parkinson's patients and got some improvements. So that's one of the first one that's going to be treated, I think, by stem cell biology. Alzheimer's, uh, stroke, are, are really going to be w the, the hardest ones to treat because right. they damage so many different cell types in so many different areas of the brain. Yeah. It's going to be a really hard one to treat in the long yeah. run. Yeah. So in terms of developing or inducing the embryonic stem cells to change into the dopamine neurons, how do you think they can stimulate them to do that. How exactly is that working? So, so what, what most people are, the approach most people are taking is to say, uh, let's see how they normally develop in the embryo. So first you make uh, a general brain cell, and then you make a midbrain cell, which is where the dopamine neurons are located in the midbrain. And then you make a neuron rather than a glial cell. Mm -hmm. And then finally you make a dopamine neuron versus other types of neurons in the midbrain. And what many people will do is try to replicate all those different steps using uh, embryonic stem cells or brain stem cells in order to convince them to be dopamine neurons. And nobody's really good at it yet. So right. they, can, they can improve the production of dopamine neurons, but nobody can make 100% uh, dopamine neurons yet. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of different steps going on there. There's another really interesting uh, approach that's come up in just in the last year. Mm -hmm. And this is called uh, direct reprogramming. I'm not sure I believe it yet, and a lot of people are unconvinced, but it's yeah. really neat. Mm -hmm. And so what they do is they'll take a fibroblast, so a skin cell, and put in as many genes as they can that are important for making dopamine neurons and ask, do we really need to go through all the developmental steps to get from, you know, to go from 
first of a, an embryo cell to a, a neural cell to a brain cell to a midbrain cell to a dopamine cell. To, you know, mm -hmm. Do we have to go, or can we just do it directly? If we genetically manipulate the cell, can we change a fibroblast directly into a dopamine neuron? Right. And so there's a couple of uh, uh, papers that are, uh, that are under a lot of discussion right now that have just been published that suggest that you may be able to put in a small number of genes that are specific for dopamine neurons and reprogram a fibroblast in the skin right. to become a dopamine neuron directly with forgetting all the developmental steps, just go right there directly. And so that's that's one of the neatest things that's, that's happening now. Uh, I'm unconvinced yet of that data, but mm -hmm. it's a neat idea. So do you think it's somewhat dangerous if you're manipulating the genome of the cell? Do you think it could have unintended consequences in terms of the cell itself? Absolutely it does, because uh, the, the way uh, you put genes into cells mm -hmm. is you uh, transfect them with viruses. And usually the viruses insert randomly in the genome. Uh, you can, there are tricks to try and get them to insert just where they're supposed to be. So if you want to put in a dopamine-making gene, you want to put it directly into the place in the genome where the other dopamine-making genes are. You can do that, but it's really hard to do, especially in human cells. So the way most people do it now is they use viruses to, uh, and retrotrans, uh, uh, reverse transcriptase to get a viral genome implanted into the, the host cell. And that, that viral, genome, viral gene carries the uh, dopamine-producing gene, for example. Now, the, the danger is, and this has been shown in some of the gene therapy trials that have been tried for other, di other diseases, that sometimes you cause a mutation by inserting randomly into the genome that actually causes tumors and cancers and produces oh. lots of unwanted effects. So uh, gene therapy about 20 years ago was thought to be, this is how we're going to cure everything, is just replace the genes that are bad. But there have been some bad accidents that have happened from trying to, uh, inserting the, the gene that's been damaged, reinserting the, the good a good copy of that gene into a cell can sometimes cause changes in that cell. And, right. pr and for example, if you, insert in a region that causes uh, turn on of a growth factor gene that's an oncogene that causes tumors, then, well, yes, you replace the missing dopamine gene, dopamine-making gene, but you'll also cause that cell to proliferate too much and make a tumor, mm -hmm. and so then you've got a problem. So there, there's, there's some really deep scientific issues that have to be solved here yeah. before this is really going to be useful. Uh, people, uh, Andre Schnaj in Toronto has is, is developed a really neat system called the Sleeping Beauty, where he inserts genes into the genome with little uh, sites on either side of the gene that he's inserted. And that gene works for a short period of time and makes a dopamine neuron, for example. He hasn't done this, but makes a dopamine neuron. And then he uses an enzyme to cut the gene back out. Oh. So before it can actually cause tumors, maybe, he cuts it back out. And in some of the cases, the, 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 the uh, chromosome uh, reseals exactly right. And so there's no evidence that there was ever gene in there. So there's techniques like these, these that I think are really going to solve the problem if you can just sort of hit and run. You get in there, change the cell into the cell you want, and then pull the gene back out, mm -hmm. and then uh, before it causes any kind of tumors or anything like that. So there's technology coming, but it's not there yet. So. We'll hear the final installment of Claire's conversation with Professor Vanderkoy on our next episode. For now, let's welcome Professor Ian Rogers, a stem cell researcher at the Lunenfeld Institute at Princess Margaret Hospital. He was a speaker at this year's Stem Cell Talks and has joined us to answer student questions submitted at the event. Hi, Professor Rogers. Why don't you start by introducing yourself? My name is uh, Ian Rogers. I'm a professor here at Mount Sinai Hospital and the University of Toronto. 
And uh, in my lab, we, we specialize in, in um, translating stem cells into therapy. So uh, we look a, a lot at um, bone marrow transplants using hematopoietic stem cells, which have been around for a, a long time, but we also are looking at developing uh, different tissues like eyelets, kidney, uh, muscle, uh, blood vessels. So um, I can answer some questions. Oh, great. <laughs> well, we have a lot of questions for you. Thank you so much for offering your time. So let's start with Eva. Hi, I'm Eva. I'm from St. Clement's School. Um, and my question is, could potentially in the future stem cell research be used to help um, grow organs in premature babies? Oh, that's, a, that's a really good question. So uh, I always like to answer questions by saying anything's possible because when you look at what's happened in science, it's been pretty amazing. So um, I think the ability to be able to do uh, uh, fetal surgery, which they have done to uh, close holes in the heart, for example, or to treat things like spina bifida. Um, that's the key. You have to have, be able to have access to the fetus and, and not do any damage to it. And the reason this is important is because if you're going to grow organs, you will want to do that by either uh, um, treating existing cells that are in there to turn on genes to make whatever organ is required or, or repair that uh, damaged organ, or you'll want to use cell therapy where you essentially want to transplant cells. So if you think about the, the case where maybe, um, um, it's hard to think off the top of my head, but uh, where there's maybe some lung damage or something like that, you can almost imagine at a certain stage you could uh, transplant in stem cells that you've grown in the lab, started to differentiate towards lung, and then integrate them into the developing tissue. So are, are babies uh, a better candidate than an adult? Um, again, that's a good question. So there's there's always the, the uh, issue of um, accessibility. So it's obviously much easier to do cell therapy or transplants on an adult, you know, large adult that's in a, a, an operating room versus in utero surgery, which is really what you're um, talking about here. So, so again, it's difficult, uh, uh, technically difficult, but I think the, the younger environment of, of, a, of um, a growing uh, fetus uh, or uh, even a newborn is probably better for the cells, uh, uh, for stem cells coming in and differentiating or integrating than in an adult. And it's the same thing along the lines that when it comes to wound repair, uh, or injuries, you know, you, you're a little kid and you're running and you scrape your knee or you pull a muscle, it repairs a lot quicker than in some, you know, in your father, your grandfather type of thing. So yeah, scientifically, uh, it, it is better, but sort of practically, technically, it would be very difficult. So you always have to balance these two things. So now we'll go on to a question from Ben. Ben Paler from Sir Winston Churchill High School. I think we can all agree that uh, reprogramming fibroblasts in the, in the scar tissue to, to be a functional cardiomyocyte is a good thing. But what about if you reprogram fibroblasts outside of the infarct area, so the functioning myocardium, to become cardiomyocytes? Is there any evidence on the loss of fibroblasts in these areas and what that would do to the function of the heart? Um, so, you know, very good question. I, I think you, you have to think about this, uh, again, from the point of view of the surgeon or the doctor who's going to repair this tissue. So I think the whole reason for reprogramming scar tissue is because when uh, uh, there's a heart attack, 
the repair is is uh, wound healing which results in scar tissue buildup and you want to replace that so reprogramming cells outside that area they probably won't be able to integrate and grow in and through the scar tissue and remove it there has been some uh, studies that have shown that that might be possible that by co-treating the scar tissue at the same time to make it a bit more permeable, break down some of the uh, proteins that sort of give it its, its sort of hard, impervious surface, uh, may allow cells to integrate in there. But I think the reason for targeting the scar tissue itself is you, you want to replace that with new cells uh, that are, are cardiomyocytes and not uh, fibroblasts or scar tissue. So could this have... Um we're talking about scarring. Is this limited to aesthetic damage, or are we talking about real? Well, in in the case of the heart, you it, it, the scar tissue replaces functional uh, uh, cardiomyocytes, uh, functional heart tissue. So if it's a, a large enough damage, then then you'll have a weaker heart. So you want to replace that. Uh, you can look at it cosmetically, like if somebody has a well, uh, that's a, where the money a scar is. on there. Yeah, on their skin, um, and they, you know, they want to replace it. Yes, you could do that, and that would, uh, would actually be simpler to to treat sort of surface skin uh, scars that way. So same principle, but you know, I think the money and the technology would be better spent treating people with heart attacks. <laughs> so now we'll move on to a question from Ali Jaffrey. My name's Ali Jaffrey. I'm from Northern Secondary School. Do stem cells have potential in not only increasing uh, ejection fraction in uh, in ill people with uh, cardiac disease, but also normal healthy people. And could this be used in the future for athletes? And would it would it be legalized? And what would the process be? Um, it's, a, so it's, it's a loaded question, right yeah, there. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's a great question. So, um, so the answer is yes. Uh, th- there's there's always the argument that our our bodies so so in the heart of somebody who sits at their desk all the time like me for example uh, I may not benefit from um, increased injection fraction the the uh, my heart may uh, rebalance if I did something that um, allowed uh, you know use stem cell therapy to increase the, the ejection fraction of my heart but in an athlete, definitely. I mean, it would really uh, uh, result in the same way that uh, doping does, and it would be treated the same. And this has come up because you can use stem cells, for example, to make new muscle. You can use stem cells to make new blood vessels, uh, which have in animals showed uh, increased blood flow. And if you're using the, the person's own stem cells, then it's really difficult to uh, be able to ascertain whether you know, it, it was natural or whether, you know, essentially you've engineered this, this athlete. So uh, the answer is yes to, to all your questions. And would it be legalized? I, I would think not. I, I, I think it would be really tough for them to determine if that's happened. Uh, I can imagine it's going to happen. So if you'd like to leave your contact information at the end of this podcast, athletes from all over the world will contact you. Um things that uh, Lance Armstrong wish, wish yes. he had access to. Okay, so our next question is from Alana. Hi, my name is Alana Esti, Baby Secondary School. What are the benefits of using gene therapy versus using stem cell um, treatment in terms of diseases overall? I, I wouldn't. I don't think there's a, a, a benefit of using one over the other. And and just to throw a little um, loop into that, uh, people have used both. They have used stem um, um, gene therapy to alter stem cells and then they've used those stem cells uh, 
uh, to treat a, a patient or not a patient but an animal model so the i think it's disease specific in some cases where you can introduce a, a safe vector that's carrying a gene into an organ uh, that's easily accessible that might be the way to go sometimes um, the you you want to be able to control gene expression you may need to uh, basically do quality control by having that altered gene already in cells or stem cells and where you can test them and then put so many cells in a person. The other way to look at it is is that um, I, I guess to simplify this a bit gene therapy would be very useful where you don't have access to donor cells from for that patient so using donor cells uh, or donor stem cells are, it's just like any transplant they have to be a match or they'll be rejected and we all know that people who need bone marrow transplants, heart transplants, lung transplants cannot, cannot always find a match. And it'll be the same for stem cell therapy. You may not always be able to find a match. So in that case, if you can take a patient's own cells and uh, re-engineer them using gene therapy, so whether you take them out of the body, you grow them and, and re-engineer them with a, a new gene, or you can somehow introduce that gene uh, into that organ directly and have it recombine and, and, re and do gene repair, I think one of the driving factors will be uh, really accessible uh, accessibility of a matched stem cell or not. So since we're juxtaposing the two techniques and they've both received a lot of, of, of public attention, um, p politically speaking and societally speaking, how would you juxtapose their their viability? I mean, gene therapy had some very high profile failures. Yeah. And as far as I understand, has been a little on the back burner ever since then. Whereas stem cells, um, certainly in the United States, had political difficulty, but to some extent that's been resolved. And yeah. so going yeah, forward. I, well, I, I, no, I agree with you totally. So, um, I, I mean, you bring up a good point. One of, one of the issues with stem cells was a whole moral ethical issue around embryonic stem cells. And that spilt over even into non-embryonic cell types. People just automatically thought all stem cells were the same. And that's gone. That's finished. People, are, I think, are well-educated now. Uh, um, so using stem cells is, is not a, a big deal for people. Although maybe um, should wait till November. And yeah. Recess, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true too. But <laughs> uh, in Canada, we're, we're still safe. Um, Gene therapy definitely had its problems and its failures because of um, vectors and uh, that were used, for example, and that was back uh, in the 80s. So it was a long time ago, and I think they've come a long way. And there, there are actually clinical trials going on currently where gene therapy is used. And we've come a long way in the last couple dec decades in making it safer. People have learned from that. So I think I, I would put them both on equal footing. I think really the decision is what what would be most efficient and economical for treating a certain disease. So I think it'll be disease-driven more than uh, politically driven. Okay, next we have a question from Vincent. Hi, my name is Vincent. I'm from the Ontario Science Center Science School. Is there a possibility to reverse being paralyzed using stem cell and how far is it being um, investigated in clinical trials? Um, so if you're talking uh, spinal cord injuries, uh, Yes, there, there has been a lot of progress. Um, one sort of downside is that um, Geron, a big company in the States, 
actually had a clinical trial going using human embryonic stem cells to treat spinal cord injury. And they, even though the, the, the initial trial of 10 or 12 patients was successful, um, they, uh, they shut down the trial and it, it was more economics, but the science behind it, it showed that uh, the cells were safe, which was the goal of this, this trial. They, they, they weren't after trying to uh, reverse paralysis in the patients. Uh, clinical first, phase one clinical trials usually just to look at safety issues, but it was a huge, huge step because it was one of the first clinical trials that had approval for human embryonic stem cells. There are a um, few groups in Toronto that um, are looking at answering this question. Dr. Mike Failings at Toronto Western actually has a large spinal cord injury model uh, where he uses stem cells and he's been testing uh, um, treating spinal cord injury in, in rats and mice and he's had some success at the animal level and his work is very solid and looks like it would uh, easily move into a clinical trial probably, I would guess, maybe in the next five five years. So, yes. To, to, to be clear, five years into clinical trials is not five years until your, your nearby hospital, though, right? No. Okay. So, but, but, it, but, and that's a good question. So, usually, um, it does take a while to get to clinical trials. They're expensive. You, and really, the issue is, is safety. You want to make sure you're not going to do any more damage or, or kill a patient that you're treating for spinal cord injury. Um, once that's done, they can then move into phase two trials, which now look at efficacy. And it's interesting because a lot of our modeling is done in, obviously done in animals and usually rodents. And there seems to be about a 90% failure rate, excuse me, when we move from sort of preclinical animal models into human uh, clinical trials. Uh, but these trials are very important to do. But yes, before it became sort of standard of care, you're probably looking at 20 years. And so, and so at least until then, you you still recommend that people wear their safety belts, and definitely helmets or whatever. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Great. And our last question for now is from Noshin. Hi, my name's Noshin, and I'm from Blur Collegiate. Is there a risk with multipotent cells in the sense that um, if the donor that the stem cells are coming from, if they have a genetic uh, trait that uh, that sort of uh, ensues mutilation, or if there are any environmental damages to the stem cells, given how that will affect the recipient and how that's treated and what happens? So yeah, that's an excellent question. And yes, there, there's always that problem. So uh, using bone marrow transplants as an example, generally someone will have a bone marrow transplant because they're trying to um, eradicate and cure them of uh, leukemia, for example. And the question is, how do you know the donor doesn't, isn't going to introduce a different type of cancer to that patient? And, and what they do is they screen the donors um, you know, before they, they will get the cells from a donor, they'll ask them what you know, what diseases are in your family, um, things like that. So that won't happen. In the cases where we might start banking uh, I fibroblasts for IPS cell lines or where we're banking umbilical cord blood, where uh, in the public banks where they don't know, um, they don't really follow the donor after the, the blood's been donated, there is that risk that that will happen. And in Europe, uh, um, the bone marrow transplant uh, group in Europe have, has actually documented rare cases, but cases where 
they've treated a patient for one disease and they've obtained another disease from the donor cells. It happens very, very, very rarely and you have to keep it in context that uh, it's worth the risk because if you have a disease, that, a fatal disease that's going to kill you um, and you're going to die anyways, I don't, I don't mean to sound morbid, but y you know the probability of one in 10,000 that your donor may pass on something new to you uh, is probably worth the risk for, for m most people. Um, so again, it's, you have to put it in the context of what diseases you're treating, what the risks are, what the chances you might want to take. But definitely uh, any donor cell in any um, situation always has that possibility that it could be carrying uh, some disease. Tune in next time as Professor Rogers will answer even more questions from Stem Cell Talks, including how to grow your own stem cells right there in the comfort of your very home. Make sure to have your grant applications ready. Thank you for joining us here at Let's Talk Science Out Loud. Remember that if you have any questions that you'd like to have answered, let us know by posting on Facebook, tweeting at LTS Out Loud, or submitting your questions at explorecuriosity.org slash LTS Out Loud. Thanks to our producers, Nika Shakiba and Emily Beckett-Sward, Let's Talk Science, and the Ontario Trillium Foundation for their online engagement grants. Special thanks to Jessica Johnston, Program Manager at the Curiosity site, for her constant help with everything online. Extra special musical thanks to one of Montreal's newer indie rock stars, Claire Boucher, better known as Grimes, for letting us use her music. Check her out at her record label, Arbitus Records. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast. You can find our feed on any of our sites, in the iTunes store, or on our SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com forward slash LTS out loud. Let us know what you think and don't hesitate to ask some questions.